I think it's fitting that in a passage about boldness that a man should approach the stage wearing a cape, (laughs) taking a nap on the stage. I like it. I told Marshall when he came in he had to take his cape off because it wouldn't look right. But Cannon can wear them. Will you pray with me, please? Father, it makes me glad that our church is a place where children are appreciated and feel, I think, welcomed and free. We're glad for that and pray that we might also feel welcomed and free, that we might communicate to the world that it's a great thing not to be a cosmic orphan, but someone who has a father in heaven. Would you come and convince us more deeply than we knew before that you really are inviting us to think of you in impolite ways, that we can approach you with shamelessness and be well received. Oh, help us to believe it again today more fully. In Jesus' name, now be among us. Amen. If you were here on Wednesday night, one of the things I read before our prayer time was a quotation that's been reverberating within me this week because I think it's very good diagnostically. The quotation was this, who one thinks God to be is best revealed not in a credo or in some statement of your faith or what you say about him, but in how one speaks to God when no one else is listening. Let me say that again. You can find out a lot about what you really believe about God. Not by what you say you believe about God, not by the creeds that you recite or the statement of faith that you have, but by how you talk to Him when nobody else is listening, when nobody else is around. I think that is a good diagnostic tool for us today to ask how much do we really think of God as our Father? Because Jesus gives us a series of permissions here in addressing God that if we understand them right, I think should make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. But we'll talk about that in a minute. One of the things that J.I. Packer has said in his great classic devotional work called Knowing God is that a Christian is someone who has God as his father. And that if you want to understand how well somebody understands the gospel, this gospel of this good news of Jesus coming into the world to rescue people from the law, to make them not slaves to sin anymore, but to have a permanent place in God's family and to be able to legitimately say, not in some abstract general sense that God's the father of us all, but to legitimately say, God is my Father. You can tell how much somebody really gets the gospel by how much they make, how big a fuss they make over having God as their Father. That's what Packer says. Because that's the thing that in the New Testament gets people stoked. That's as a song we've sung before that the beloved Apostle John says, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. That there's some kind of astonishment feature that should be happening to us 
And the problem for us is that we've heard that two or three or four hundred million times. And so it's not really that astonishing. It doesn't seem that revolutionary. It's not that innovative. It doesn't seem that good. And so today it's a, an opportunity, I think, for you to think about how much do I really think about God as my father? And how much does that really comfort me? How much does that really change me? How much does that set me free in private with him in ways that affect my public life for him? Jesus is being asked by his disciples because they've noticed that when he prays, it's different. So they're curious, will you teach us how to pray like that? We want to know something about interacting with God the way you do. There's some kind of special X factor to your prayers that we want to get in on. And so Jesus tells them the Lord's Prayer, what we know of now as the Lord's Prayer, sort of framework for addressing God. And he starts out by saying, address him as Father. We're not going to get into all those parts. If I cuss during a sermon for the, maybe the first time, it will only be because my pages keep flipping. And that's a, isn't that a legitimate reason to cuss? Okay, it's not. It's a joke, children. It's a joke. And I'm, not, I'm talking actually to literal children. But one of the things, so Jesus, after he gives this idea of the Lord's Prayer, he actually starts to say, here, let me tell you something about the way you ought to approach God. How, how much I mean that you can think of him as your father. And what he does when he does this is he gives them a bunch of uh, permission. One of the things that we've been doing lately is playing a lot of baseball. And one of the things that we've told our boys in the midst of all the heat is you don't have to ask our permission to go get water. You're always free. If you'd like to go get a tug on your bottle, provided it's only water, or Gatorade, or some other non-alcoholic beverage, you are allowed to go get, none of our nine, ten-year-olds drink so far as we know, you're allowed to go get water anytime. You don't have to ask. There's a, a freedom we've tried to give them so they don't feel like they've got to wait and suffer thirsty, so we want them to feel free to get water. And I think that's part of what Jesus is doing here, because he knows that people who start to care about God, people like you and me who get socialized into the church and start to be bound by a bunch of rules and, and even desires to please God, we get, we get robotic sometimes. We, we get keyed up sometimes. We, we think things have to be done in a certain kind of way. And sometimes what Christians need... Sometimes what God's people need is they need to be given permission. You mean I'm allowed to be honest? You mean I'm allowed to do this? Like that whole bit about it's for freedom that Christ has set you free? That actually means something and not nothing? It does. It means a lot. And one of the things it means is that you have permission to address God as your father and come to him as an impolitely free child. You have permission from Jesus here to come to God as your father as an impolitely free child. Suppose one of you has a friend. He goes to him at midnight and he says, friend. Now, notice, he's talking about somebody he knows there's some kind of familiarity. And the familiarity is what emboldens him to make a fairly audacious request. It's midnight. 
Needloff's is closed. Won't be open for six or seven more hours. Even the favorite market's closed, or the Handy Andy, or the Mapco, or whatever iteration of convenience store it now is. Everything's closed. There's no place to get bread. And it's a horrible thing in the ancient Near East if someone comes to your house and you don't have food to set out for them. There's no Holiday Inn Express. They're coming to stay with you. You've got to feed them. You're going to look like an ingracious host if you don't have something to give them. So you go to your friend at midnight and you say, that was terrible. I've got nothing to set before me. Before these guests, will you give me some food? And the guy inside, your friend, says, what are you doing? He whispers over to his wife, can you believe he's knocking at this hour? The door is already locked. My children are in bed with me. We're all tucked in. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, Jesus says, though he won't get up because of friendship. You know, there are certain times, even with a friend, you're saying, buzz off! He says, even if a friend, his friendship makes him say, buzz off, like, come back later. Really, is it this important at midnight? Because of the man's boldness, or his persistence, or his shameless importunity, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now, See, what Jesus is saying here is, like, you actually, because he's comparing himself to the friend who's, who's nuzzled in with his kids, with the doors locked, who doesn't want to be bothered. He's actually saying, bother me. God, your father, wants to be bothered by you. That's why he gives this example. The friend says, don't bother me. Jesus is saying, if you were to bother your friend, if you were to bother him enough, if you were to bother him shamelessly enough, impolitely enough, you know what? Even if he wouldn't get up because he was your friend, just because of the audacity of the thing, he would succumb. And of course, every parent in here, sometimes to your credit and sometimes to your shame, has given in to a child. You've bought them something that they wanted to have at the store. They thought for sure they would die if they did not receive it. Or you have given them something that they've continued to ask and ask and ask and ask you for. You know why you did it? Just so they'd leave you alone. Just so they'd stop it. Children know the rule. They know the law of wearing their parents down. They're masters at it. And Jesus says, I would like for you to employ that with your father. He tells a similar story, of course, when he talks about this widow. You know, in the First century, a widow would be about the worst thing in the world to be. You would have no rights. You'd have no power, no clout. And if you're taken advantage of somehow in some kind of economic situation, you go to a judge. He said there was an unjust judge. He neither cared about God nor men. And this widow came to him. Give me justice, she said. Please do something about this. Please employ the law so that things are set right. And he says, go away. Leave me alone. She doesn't have Johnny Cochran. She doesn't have... A high-priced lawyer. So she comes back again. And again, he says, leave me alone. And she keeps coming back and keeps coming back. And this judge, who doesn't give a rip about her or about upholding God's justice, eventually says, oh, all right. You're wearing me out. I'll give you what you want if you'll just promise not to bother me anymore about it. 
Now, of course, God is not an unjust judge, and he's obviously not a bad father, and he's not an annoyed friend. But he's using these examples to let you say, look, God is so much better than those guys. And even those guys will eventually succumb. God wants you to be that persistent. God wants you to be that impolite. He wants you to come to him and bother him. Now, if you believe that God is your father, you will bother him a lot about a lot of things because the world is a bothered place. There's a whole lot wrong about life. There's a whole lot that's turned upside down. There's a whole lot that's not working as it should. There's a whole lot that makes us groan. Accidents happen. Jobs get lost. Marriages fall apart. Children rebel. Tornadoes come and take your roof off. The power goes out. This is a world that is troubled and wounded and wobbly. And we have a father who says, will you bother me about that? Phil Yancey, in his book on prayer, tells a story about his congregation in inner city Chicago where I take it a small congregation like this where the corporate prayers are done aloud and people pray out loud together. And he said one week, a woman startled everyone because when it came time to pray, she said, God... I hated you after the rape. I hated the people in here. I asked, I thought, why me? Why did you let this happen to me? I hated the people in this church that were trying to comfort me. This is a prayer in church, she's saying. Everybody, he says, got suddenly quiet. No papers were rustling. I hated the comfort they were trying to give me. I didn't want comfort. I wanted revenge. I wanted him to hurt back. And she says, but I thank you that you kept after me. And some of these people did too. And now I'm asking you, because I'm here and I'm back, I'm asking you to heal the scars. And Yancey said that morning, there was a lot more resonance than all the normal monologues I hear in church and all the polite ways of addressing God. When that lady spoke like that, I thought, that sounds like a Bible prayer. That sounds like Jacob or Moses wrestling with God, saying, I'm not going to let go of you until you give me your blessing. I've got to have you. You're the only one who can do something about this. If you think about Jesus saying, you're children, and you've got a father who won't trick you, If you think about your own children or think about as you were a child, especially if you have parents who are moderately good, if you have, like my children, exceptional parents, then you're supposed to smile. Thank you. (laughs) I've noticed something. There is no other context on the planet where a 10-year-old boy or a 6-year-old boy would, would run up and jump on a person who's 20 times their size without fear of retribution. These boys, I'll be sitting there, and they'll just land on me. If they landed on some guy my size out in the world, it would be very peculiar. If they just came up and sat in somebody's lap, or if they said the kind of... Kaylor makes a joke sometimes. Mom, Dad doesn't have a belly button, does he? He has a belly hole. He goes all the way to China. Now... Okay, that's an image you don't want to... Let linger too long. You know what? 
I'm glad these boys feel comfortable around me for the most part until I'm a monster. And when you feel comfortable with your dad, you tell him stuff and you ask him stuff and you interact with him. And of course, that's what Jesus is saying here. That's part of what made the disciples so intrigued about his praying. You seem quite comfortable with God, like, like you're really close. Because in Jesus' eyes, and the way the New Testament spins this thing, you never really outgrow son status. You know, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the King. We call him Lord. But when we talk about the Trinity, it's still God the Father, God the Son. He doesn't graduate. And we don't either. In some respects, you never graduate from being son or daughter. And God wants you not to graduate. He wants you always to think, I've got to depend on my father. So he says, you've got permission to be impolitely free with me. Not long ago, I was talking with a guy that I had known. He and his, in his family, they had had some financial woes. They, had had, they needed another car. Things had not gone well for them. And I noticed that they were in a different car. And I said, hey, man, did you get a new ride? And he said, yeah, the most amazing thing. Somebody just gave us this car for a year. And I was so ecstatic because I knew, oh, wow, the Lord's answered prayer here. And this is going to be such a big help to you. And it's going to be a, a load off from some of your cares. And he was telling me about a job situation that was emerging. And he had been looking for work. And I was so excited. And I said, well, what, do you, what happened? You know, like what... And he said, you know, it's actually, uh, it's actually something you told me about six or seven years ago. And, I, you know, my jaw hit the floor because one of the things you have to get used to when you have this position is that every now and again somebody will actually listen to what you say and you're, I'm always thinking, please don't take notes. Don't write, this. it's just me, I'm just talking, you don't have to write this down. Or it's a little bit nerve-wracking sometimes when you say something and somebody does something in response to it. I didn't mean to influence anybody. And so here's this guy telling me he did something that I said six or seven years ago. And I said, what did I say? What did I tell you six or seven years ago? And he, I remembered back with him as he was telling me this. That he had a lot of, he had a lot of uh, disorienting distress in his life. His, uh, just a bad situation all the way around, a young man. And he came to me and he said, I'm having a hard time interacting with God. I don't know how to pray. I feel like I'm trying to be polite. And apparently I said something like, well, that's your problem. You're trying to be polite. Maybe you need to go and get in God's face. Whatever's going on inside of you, God already knows this. You're not going to reveal any new situation to him, but you're going to entrust him with some new stuff. And his shoulders are broad. He can handle it. So why don't you go Go out in the woods where nobody can hear you and talk to him like you mean it. Like he's there. If you need to yell, yell. If you need to cry, cry. Say what's going on inside of you. Refer it to him. And he said, I remembered you saying that. And I, well, one day not long ago, I was, the, the desperation got to him. I don't know why I didn't do this earlier, he said. But apparently he was sitting in his car. And he said, I just screamed. I just couldn't take it anymore, and I just screamed out to God. I just started unburdening before him. 
And I think he was mystified by it. He thought, this is, this is awesome. It wasn't long after that, he said, that this car came along and this, this job situation came along. I was thrilled because I think, hey, he's getting it. That's what the Bible prayers are about. That's what the psalmist prays like. He refers all of his inner gunk to God because Jesus is urging us here to think of his father as someone that we can impolitely and freely come to and as someone that we know can do something about it. There isn't a situation that he can't do something about. To change it or you. And so he's saying, if you believe that God's your father in this way, you'll have this familiarity that will make you come to him and get up in his face and bother him and be shameless and persistent and annoying and obnoxious even if you need because you trust him that much. He's not going to trick you. A few weeks ago, I was doing a wedding, and I don't know what course of events, how this course of events transpired, but I was sitting in my study with the groom, and we had just had a word of prayer, and we were also with his little nephew, who's a 10-year-old boy. I don't know how the 10-year-old boy came to be in there with us, because it was just me, the groom, and the 10-year-old boy, his, the nephew. And this little boy was a cute little boy, and he was nervous, because he was going to be standing up here. And the more nervous he got, the more things he said. I know something about that. And he was talking and talking, and he was a very charming little guy. And he was looking around all the books in my office, and he asked me, he said, do you, do you own this church? And I said, you dang right I do. <laughs> I said, no, 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 I don't, earn, I don't own this church. I don't own this church. I serve this church as its, as its pastor. And he was asking about that. What does a pastor do, and what's your job, and those sorts of things. And then he said this. After a 0.4 milliseconds of silence, how'd you get to know so much about God? No one has ever asked me that before. A child I didn't know felt the freedom to ask a very obvious question to ask. Hey, you presume to get up there and talk to people about God? How do you know so much about God? But it wasn't a standoffish question. It was pure curiosity. But see, children ask things. Directly. They say what they think. They wear a cape and lie down on the stage if they need. They feel comfortable. They know they're accepted. And he asked that, and I was caught off guard a bit by the question because I've never been asked it before. Good questions always catch people off guard. And I said, Well, I, you know, I've, I've read the Bible a lot. And that's one of the places that God tells us a lot about himself. So that's one of the ways I've learned. And, and I, you see all these books. I've read a lot about people and the things they've said about God. And then I think it was time to go. So we didn't get to continue. But as I thought on it, you know what I wish I had said? I wish I had said, I've learned in those ways. But you know how I've really learned? By, by, by praying to him a lot. By by going to him when I wasn't sure anything was going to happen or if it made any difference, and I went anyway, and I learned that he was actually there. By, by when I was really scared about some stuff, and I didn't think it would matter, but I didn't know what else to do, so I went to him, 
and I, and I asked him a lot, and I wrestled with him, that's how I learned some things about it. And when I, I saw situations that I didn't know anything to do about, I thought, maybe my Father in Heaven can do something about it. So I went to him. And when I knew there was action required, but I didn't know which action, I didn't know if I had the guts to do the action, I went to him, and I learned that he would give me the guts to do the action. I wish I had answered like that. Because that's the place where I've learned that Father is not only somebody I can be impolitely free with, but Father is someone who can do something about it. He can do something about me and all that's presently wrong with me. He can do something about every situation that you're in. And Jesus is inviting you. Bother him. Ask him. Knock. Wear him out with your coming. I imagine that most of the marriages in here most of the rifts, many of them, not most, a lot of them. There, there'd be a lot of issues that would be substantially healed if instead of saying so much to your enemy or your spouse, you said it to God first. One of the best gifts that you could give your children as a parent is to be a parent who bothers God a lot. One of the best gifts that you could give your spouse is to be a spouse that bothers your father in heaven a lot for the sake of your spouse. One of the best gifts you can give your city and your country that you're concerned about is to be a citizen or an employee or a leader who bothers God a lot so that you know how to move out into the world to act on his behalf. And so that you get him to acting on his own behalf. David Hansen said, I am so grateful, so grateful for all the things that I've said to God and to no one else. He said, I can't tell you how many times I've been in an argument with somebody or someone has done me wrong. And before I go to talk to them, I go wander around with God and I wrestle it out with God. I wrestle my anger. I wrestle my depression. I wrestle my hurt. I come impolitely, in other words, freely like a child up in my father's lap, to tell him everything about it. And he says, so many of those times I get changed in the process and I never let those words or thoughts see the light of day. It's okay, he says, to be wrong with God. See, that's part of the gift here that Jesus says, your father, (laughs) you think he's not better than you as a father? You think he's not better? If Say you had a good dad. You think he's not better than your good dad? How do you think your good dad got to be good? Where do you think your good dad got the impulse to give you, say, an egg when you ask for an egg instead of a scorpion? You say, well, that's, that's not really that hard, is it? Any goodness that you find in your parents, any goodness you find as a parent, is because the ultimate parent has let you bear his image. He's a lot better than you are. He's a lot better than your dad. And he says you can ask for the Holy Spirit. And you know what the Holy Spirit does? It's the Spirit that says you're accepted. Peter realized, hey, wait, these Gentiles, these godless people, these people who aren't people of promise, God showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he has to us. And the Apostle says this Spirit is the Spirit that comes in us and it corroborates inside us. It makes a reverberation that says, 
You are a child of God. It's what propels you to say, God, you are my father. I can trust you like my father. Steve Brown used to say, my friends, my friends would, we'd get in trouble in high school. We'd do something we weren't supposed to do. And we'd get caught. And my friends would be saying, oh, when we go home, I dread it. My dad is going to kill me. And he said, I always thought, when I get home, my dad is going to love me. And that would be a lot worse. See, when you know that you're going to receive goodness, even in the face of your badness, when you know that he's accepted you fully so you can come with whatever your crimes and misdemeanors are, with whatever you are feeling that you think you ought not to be feeling, Whatever you're thinking that you are embarrassed to think, the things you're embarrassed to say out loud here, you can say to him. And if you believe as your father, you'll do a lot of it. And you'll be wrong. And he'll still love you. I promise you, all your learning, all your reading, and I love all those things. I love learning, I love reading. I love reading about God, but you've got to do business with God, about all the business of your life. And you're doing business with your family, with your father. And there's not anything in your life that doesn't invite you to come to him, expecting him to be the one who can do something about it, and to come as an impolitely free child. I'm going to close with this that I saw this week in the late hours of the night or the early hours of the morning, I discovered to my great surprise that on Netflix, streaming online was the greatest movie that has ever been created called Lonesome Dove. If you don't know this movie, you are culturally illiterate. You must rectify it immediately. I think it was made in 1989, and I haven't seen it in 15 or 20 years, but I watched it. And it's the story of these two old Texas Rangers played by the most awesome film actors ever, Robert Duvall and Tommy Lee Jones. One's Augustus McRae and one's Woodrow F. Call. They're former Texas Rangers. They're making their way out in the unsettled west from Lonesome Dove, Texas to Montana, driving a herd of cattle there before all the bankers and lawyers get to it. And Larry McMurtry, who wrote the novel that this film is based on, said, you know, the film is not so much about, it's not really so much about this cattle drive as it is a film about unclaimed paternity. Because Tommy Lee Jones, who plays Woodrow F. Call, is a man of great integrity, a man of steel backbone, a man who is emotionally... Idiotic. He is a man who is quoted as saying, you know, they quote this about him, he's not much of a mentioner. He don't say much. He don't emote much, except anger. And so, throughout this movie, there's this boy, Ricky Schroeder. Some of you older women, may, people my age, may have loved him as a teenage boy on Silver Spoons. Ricky Schroeder is this teenager And 
Everybody in the camp knows that he's the son of Tommy Lee Jones, Woodrow F. Call. But Woodrow can't bring himself to tell him. And as Augustus lays dying, he makes Woodrow make him a promise. Give that boy your name. He's a 16-year-old boy. He needs to know who his daddy is. Promise me you'll give that boy your name. Well, one of the parting scenes is Woodrow looking at Newt, this son of his that he has never named as his son. And he, he puts him in charge of the ranch as he goes off on a long journey. He hands him this gold watch. He says, my father, my father gave me this, Newt. I give it to you. He gives him his horse, his prized horse, whose name I can't mention in a church service. Starts with, I can't even say that. (laughs) Got to watch the movie. But he gives him his horse, he puts him in charge of his ranch, he gives him the watch that his father gave him. But when it comes time to utter in the words, Newt, he can't bring himself to do it. We learn from his standpoint later when a lady says, did you give that boy your name yet? And he says, I gave him a horse. (laughs) She said, you gave him your horse, but why didn't you give him your name? She says, I put a whole lot more value on that horse than I do my name. We see his pathology in that, but Newt, as he looks in the eyes of Tommy Lee, and he wants so badly for him to say, You're my boy. He can't say it, so Newt rides off, heartbroken, saying, I ain't got no kin on this earth. I ain't got no kin on this earth. And you feel the tragic loneliness of that. And you juxtapose it to Jesus saying to people like us, I have actually created a situation where you have kin on the earth. The one who rules and provides breath to all has become your father because I have taken your place. I was temporarily abandoned as a son so that you, sons and daughters, could come in. And now you have kin on the earth, each other. Now you're positioned to set the lonely into families and to adopt my father's concerns on the planet. And you are free to come as impolitely as shamelessly, as persistently, and as boldly as any child ever addresses their father, you have permission now to address your father who wasn't afraid to name you, who's not ashamed to call you his. The question will be, will you be a people who believe that enough to get the joy of it and who in your private with him When no one's listening, you'll wear him out. You'll bother him about all the bothers of the world so that your father's name can be seen everywhere. I hope we'll do that together. Amen.